let me begin by welcoming everyone to the Israel Study Seminar. My name is Eugene Rogan, and it's my distinction to be both your chairman and your speaker for today's seminar. I come with the apologies of Professor Yadgar, who has taken ill with a bug, and there are so many going around at the moment. And Sarah Hirschhorn has also written to give her regrets. And so it is down to me to keep the show going. And what I will say by way of an introduction to myself is that I am the director of the Middle East Center, and I teach the modern history of the Middle East here at the University of Oxford, doing that job since 1991. So I'm in my 27th year. And the story I'm about to tell you is a story that actually predates my arrival in Oxford. This is a story that's waited some 30 years to be told, and it's kind of fun to have the opportunity to share this one with you. When Jakob first asked if I'd be willing to give a paper looking at Arab perspectives on Israel for this Israel Studies Seminar, my first response was, I'd love to, but I don't have any research on hand to do so. My most recent work was on the Middle East and the First World War, and it doesn't really have any spin-offs that are relevant to what the Arab world has made of Israel in the year since 1948. So I gave my apologies and promised I would support his promotion of Israel studies in the university in some other way. But then about a week later, I suddenly remembered this paper. As I said, this is a paper that takes me back to 1986, when I had submitted it as an abstract to present at the Middle East Studies Association meeting in Boston that year. Now, Boston's Mesa meeting in 1986 has since become the stuff of legend. I still have in this, I was a very anal young man, so all the paperwork associated with my application and acceptance as a paper giver to one of my very first conferences. I was still, I was just a doctoral student at this point at Harvard. And so they wrote around in May to get us all excited about what was going to happen in Boston for Mesa. They said, one of the high points in the program will be a discussion between Professors Bernard Lewis and Edward Said of the relation between scholars of the Middle East and the media. This is, of course, the very famous showdown between Lewis and Said that took place at Mesa in Boston. Perhaps that meeting is better remembered for Lewis versus Said than the young doctoral candidate from Harvard who had come to give what was his second conference paper, my first, in case your trivia buffs, was actually for the Brismas meeting that met in London that summer just before Mesa met. So I was off to a rollicking good start as, a, uh, as an ambitious doctoral student. And I wanted to share on this occasion the fruit of some research that I had undertaken while on a Fulbright scholarship in Jordan in the 1984-85 academic year. And I was primarily there to study Arabic, but the study of Arabic isn't quite enough to keep my intellectual curiosity at bay. And I found myself taking on other research projects just to develop my Arabic, develop my knowledge. I used to sit in on, after my language classes in the morning, I'd go and attend the history lectures given by the University of Jordan faculty. And there was one given by Professor Suheila Rimawi on the modern history of the Middle East, my field. And, you know, sitting in her classes, I could follow perhaps 70 to 80% of what she said. So it was good for my Arabic. It was good for my history. 
And every now and again, I came across something that I couldn't make sense of, and I talked to her about it afterwards. On one day, she had gotten to the First World War and the partition diplomacy. She talked us through what was very familiar terrain. There were references to Hussein McMahon correspondence and how perfidious Albion undermined those by their Sykes-Picot agreement with France and how Britain once again betrayed its commitment to the Arab world through the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And I'm writing notes and I'm nodding away. I'm familiar with all this. And then she said, but before all of them, laying the foundation for all of this was the Bannerman Report. Okay, I'm glad you look puzzled too. I stopped taking notes and wrote it down carefully and made a point of going up to Professor Rimawi after the lecture and said, what's the Bannerman Report? She said, what, you're at Harvard and you've never heard of the Bannerman Report? So I confessed to both of those accusations. And she said, well, it's typical of you in the West to try and hide the acts of your imperialist past about which you're rightly ashamed. Your teachers are keeping it a secret from you. Now, this seemed very unlikely to me, and I tried to explain to her that, on the contrary, it is the Western tradition in critical scholarship to try and find precisely the things that bring most shame to our societies. If we write our histories on such things, it gets a lot of attention and we become famous. But she wouldn't buy it for a minute. She assumed that I was another deluded Westerner whose teachers were trying to spare themselves and callow youths like me the horrible legacy of our betrayals of the Arab world before, during, and after the First World War. She assigned me two readings that would explain everything I needed to know about the Bannerman Report, a book by a man, an Egyptian scholar by the name of Lutfi Sabri al-Khuli on imperial policy towards Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. This is a book that was his thesis to Al-Azhar University, which was subsequently published by the Dar al-Ma'arif, in the 1970s. It's a well-known reference. You'll find any scholar working on the Arab world and the Arab-Israeli conflict will refer to uh, Lutfi Sabri al-Khuli's book. And then she gave me what was Sabri al-Khuli's reference or source for the Bannerman Report, which is an article published in 1957 by a lawyer in Egypt by the name of Anton Selim Kanaan in which he introduces the theme of the Bannerman Report. So armed with these two readings, which took me a little bit of time to go through, I'm still a cub reporter in Arabic and spent a lot of time in the company of Hans Ver trying to make sure I got every nuance of the Arabic to make sure I followed the story. I then went to the special collection of the University of Jordan Library to go through everything they had in Arabic on the origins of the Arab-Israeli conflict to find what other books referred to the Bannerman Report. What I found were about a half dozen more titles that constituted something of a historian's dirty snowball. Books that became a kind of self-referential literature, each author referring back either to Sabri al-Huli or to other authors that had referred to Campbell Bannerman without anyone ever being able to footnote or cite an actual document. I also went through every Western source that I could find to see if I could situate Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, who, as those of you with familiarity of British political history will know, was the last liberal prime minister. He served as prime minister for only two years between 90 or three years, 1905 to 1908. Now, this is not a man that I could 
associate any specific Middle East policies with, let alone any policies that were particularly influential in binding Britain to the Zionist movement. And certainly none of my readings in Western sources gave me any grounds to believe that he had been in some way involved in the crafting of a document that would lay the foundations for British support for the Zionist movement in Palestine. Now, I was a Harvard boy, but I still knew where the center of all learning on the Middle East was. And so I wrote to Albert Hurani here at the Middle East Center in Oxford. I'd met him on my way out to the Middle East. He'd been introduced to me by his Harvard student, uh, Philip Hurry, who was my supervisor. So I felt emboldened to write to the great man in Oxford. Dear Mr. Hurani, have you ever heard of the Bannerman Report or the Campbell-Bannerman Report? And Hurani confirmed that indeed, erudite man that he was, he had never come across this document either, and that he thought that somebody must have confused something they'd read in the archive, perhaps something to do with the British Imperial Committee that would meet from time to time and discuss coordinating imperial matters across the many continents of the British Empire. I even paid my first visit to Kew in the aftermath of all this to see whether there was anything you could track down among imperial committee records that bore some resemblance to what Lutfi al or Canaan referred to in this essay on the Bannerman Report. But I will not surprise you if I tell you that my efforts in queue on that occasion were in vain. And so I wrote up my findings in Arabic. It's the only time I've ever written an article in Arabic. My reason for wanting to write this piece in Arabic were pretty simple. I didn't see the point in exposing to a Western readership the conspiracy-laden approach to writing history in the Arab world. That seemed to me to be a kind of unfair thing to do, and it wouldn't be particularly constructive for the Arab historians who had first engaged me in this debate. By writing it in Arabic, and I published it for the Majalla Fakafia. Here, I, I know you all subscribe to it, but I, I hold up the issue just so that you'll see the one that I was in. And um, I still played to the gallery a little bit for the Arabic readership. My opening sentence became laughingstock of all my Harvard colleagues. It, it says in Arabic, إِنَّ الْمُؤَمْرَةِ دِدِّ الْبُلْدَانِ الْعَالَمِ الْعَرَبِي الْإِسْلَامِ لَا نِحَيَ لِهَا مِنْ غَرْبُهَا الْأَقْصَى فِي الْمَغْرِبِ حَتَّى شَرْكُهَا فِي بِلَادِ الشَّامِ وَالْعِرَاقِ So the conspiracies against the Middle East are without end from its westernmost edges in Morocco to its easternmost edges in Bilad al-Sham and Iraq. Why am I playing to the gallery? Because I wanted to reassure my Arabic reader that I understand their point of view and where they're coming from and that there are indeed conspiracies one can point to. We have Avi Shlaim with us in the audience. He's written about one of the best conspiracies ever, which was the Protocol of Sevres. If you're looking for backroom dealings to conspire against the established order, anyone who lived through the 1956 Suez crisis, would have a good case study to, to base their suspicions on. But my point to the Arab reader is not every conspiracy theory is worth your credence. You should be asking critical questions of your sources. And so in a bid to open this debate with the at least the Arab historians of Jordan, I wrote this article in Arabic. I... Um, was pleased to see it published. Suhaila Rimawi, the professor who had first introduced me to the Bannerman Report, wrote a rebuttal to my article. 
this being a Jordanian publication, out of deference to her seniority, they published her rebuttal first, and then my article followed her rebuttal, which was a curious way of ordering things, but of course, deference in all such things. And um, so anyone who got through Suhaila's denunciation of my work as utter rubbish would, if they had the stomach to continue on, have found my arguments. I never got a lot of correspondence from any Arab historians about what I had suggested about Arab history on the Arab-Israeli conflict or indeed on the Bannerman Report itself. I think it's just one of those pieces that fell into oubli but was a great exercise for me in, in extending my Arabic skills after all of that. And then after all was said and done, and I'd published my article, and I'd made my statement, and I'd submitted my application to Mesa to go and give this paper. I was in Cairo in the summer of 1986. I was talking to researchers at the American Research Center in Cairo, RC, about my recent obsession with this document. And they said, well, if your man who wrote the article in 1957, Anton Slim Kanan, was a lawyer, he might still be a member of the lawyers' union. He's probably in the phone book. Look him up. Such a novel idea never crossed my mind. So I took the phone book right there they had in the RC offices. And sure enough, Anton Slim Kanan was a listed number. And I dialed the number. And this very elderly voice said, hello. So I had my man. I could actually go and talk to the man who had given us the story of the Bannerman Report. And I have here, again, resurrected from my personal archives, with his business card, Anton Salim Kanan, the tape recording of my conversation with the man held in his apartment on Shad Aramsis in downtown Cairo in the summer of 1986. So what I'd like to do after that lengthy introduction is share with you where I got to when I compiled all this evidence together and how I made sense of what the spurious documents meaning was in the bigger scheme of things. So in September of 1957, this is my Mesa 1986 paper. I've never given this paper before, 32 years. In September of 1957, an Egyptian lawyer named Anton Slim Kanan presented a paper to the third conference of the Arab Lawyers Union, which convened that year in Damascus. The article introduced a document called the Campbell-Bannerman Report, said to be the working paper of a secret imperialist conference Summoned by the British Liberal Government of Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman, the report consisted of an investigation into the centers of imperial vulnerability and recommended appropriate courses of action. As recounted by Kanan, both the conference and the report, which it produced, were incredible. With the fall of the Balfour Conservative Government in December 1905, a liberal ministry was formed. Kanan explained... Noteworthy for the lack of experience in foreign affairs. This is not strictly true, but this is the way Kanan presented the world. Consequently, a bargain was struck with the conservatives, whereby the conduct of foreign affairs would be left to members of Balfour's defeated government. This left the liberals free to address pressing domestic issues such as the Irish question. The first matter of business, he maintained, undertaken by those conservatives, seconded to a liberal foreign office, was to augment the Anglo-French Entente Cordiale of 1905 with a broader imperialist front. Hence, the convening of a secret conference. Leading academics from European colonial powers, including France, Belgium, Holland, Portugal, Italy, and Spain, were sent to London to represent their nation's interests. These were addressed 
by the Prime Minister, who did not otherwise participate in the conference. Beginning with a discourse on the rise and fall of past empires, Campbell Bannerman supposedly charged the Assembly with the duty of proposing the means to prevent the fall of European imperial order and to permit the continued subordination of the non-European world. So that's the mission of the secret imperialist conference of all these imperial nations. After a period of research and deliberation, the conferees drafted their conclusion in the form of a working paper. And this is what becomes known as the Bannerman Report in Arabic, Takrir Bannerman, though rightly speaking, given the double-barreled name, we should call it the Campbell Bannerman Report. After defining the zones of each nation's interests, the report eliminated potential trouble spots from around the world. Turning to the Mediterranean, however, the conferees agreed there was cause for concern, particularly along its eastern and southern boundaries, the eastern Mediterranean and the southern Mediterranean. From Gibraltar to Alexandretta, the Mediterranean was inhabited by a single people, united by deep religious, linguistic, historical, and cultural links. The Arab world straddles very important commercial routes, as well as vital strategic arteries connecting Europe with Asia, such as the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, and of course, the Suez Canal first and foremost. Predictions of great demographic growth across this region compounded the threat of shared Arab aspirations to make the prospects of Arab unity across North Africa and the Middle East a great menace to the imperial order as a whole. Again, this is all according to the Bannerman Report, as recounted to us by Anton Salim Kanan. This is not Rogan telling you about imperial history. In his article, Kanan does not specify exactly how the Campbell-Bannerman Report proposed to treat this danger. He doesn't actually, in his article, reproduce the text of the Campbell-Bannerman Report. He talks about it, but he doesn't quote it. He does clearly state that the document laid the groundwork for a policy of British support for Zionist aspirations. That's the whole point of his 1957 article. Subsequent authors have filled in the connection between the threat of nascent Arab unity to the imperial order and the laying of a British policy favorable to Jewish settlement in Palestine. The Egyptian historian Hassan Sabri El-Khouli, and he, of course, is the second author that my professor at the University of Jordan had given me to read. In his 1967 PhD dissertation, subsequent published by the Dadan Ma'arif in 1973, wrote that the 1907 conferees proposed to address the security threat of greater Arab unity, quote, by working to divide the African part from the Asiatic section of this region. Towards this end, it was suggested that a strong foreign human barrier be placed in the land bridge which ties Asia to Africa and which binds them both to the Mediterranean, so as to form in this region and in proximity to the Suez Canal a force that would be friendly to the imperialists and an enemy to the residents of the region. This is the notion of the human barrier. On the one hand, this account, with a quoted passage which would lead the reader to assume it originated from the Campbell-Bannerman report itself, so Al-Khuli is actually putting quote marks around text that Kanan never actually cites himself, serves to link the dangers outlined in Kanan's article with subsequent British support for Zionism. 
On the one hand, Al-Huli only footnoted Kanan's article in his treatment of the Campbell-Bannerman report. Though the document is referred to in a number of works in Arabic, these must either draw on the Kanan article or else on other works based on the Kanan article, for there is no copy extant of the Campbell-Bannerman report. And as mentioned above, it was Anton Salim Kanan who introduced the document to Arabic scholarship. Dr. El-Huli's embellishments aside, the Campbell-Bannerman report, as it's come down to us, is at best a very spurious document. Taking Mr. Kanan's account at face value for the moment, the report in question was circulated through the British Foreign Office and Colonial Office before disappearing. It did not reappear until 1914, when it was said to have been uncovered by an ambitious young reporter who subsequently lost his life in the battlefields of the First World War. There is a recurring theme here, that discovering the Bannerman Report is very bad for your longevity. So far, I am defying the odds. But you might want to sit a little further from me in case by reawakening this article, unintended consequences unfold. No mention is made of the paper Kanan wrote for, I'm sorry, that the journalist who discovered it in 1914 wrote for, or the articles he might have written, or of his name for that matter. The matter lay buried for another 40 years, until Mr. Kanan learned of the document in the course of some academic research. Mr. Kanan gave no indication in his article of how he discovered the report. Indeed, his article is devoid of footnotes and references of any kind. What, then, is the historical value of such a document? It has been rejected by respected Arab historians for lack of an original. And what we're left with is a vague description provided by Mr. Kanan in his 1957 paper presented to his colleagues at the Arab Lawyers Union Conference in Damascus. Placed in its own historic context, Mr. Kanan's article is a document of its time. It was presented within a year of the Suez War of 1956, and I think the timing of this is very important for understanding the broader meaning of what his document purports to say. His audience in Damascus proved quite receptive to an account which pitted the British and the French interests through a Zionist proxy against the unity of the greater Arab nation. I mean, in some ways, that captures the tripartite aggression of the 1956 Suez War. Britain and France colluding with Israel to try and advance Israel's control across the Sinai Peninsula to the banks of the Suez Canal. If you were making such an account in 1957, after the experience of 1956, you could imagine it would be falling on fertile ears. Had not the Nasserist ideology of pan-Arabism just suffered precisely such an assault? I argued it had. So, to me, it seems possible that the whole story was contrived, both for the audience in Damascus and for the three-year-old government of Gamal Abdel Nasser in Cairo. After all, as a lawyer in Nasser's Egypt, Mr. Kanan was a member of an endangered profession. Turning to studies of lawyers in Egypt, once confronted with a profession whose prestige and influence suffered major reversals following the 1952 revolution. If under the monarchy, the legal profession was overcrowded, offering inadequate opportunities for advancement, yet lawyers dominated cabinets, the parliament, and parties. In the political struggle between General Naguib and Colonel Nasser in 1954, 
the Bar Association placed itself firmly behind General Naguib in his call for a return to parliamentary rule. Coming out on top, Abdul Nasser acted decisively against the bases of lawyers' power. The abolition of parliament, the dissolution of political parties, the purging of the universities, and the censorship of the press deprived lawyers and politicians of all complexions of the bases from which to operate. Lawyers were thus squeezed out of the profession or else driven into government employment as legal advisors, referred to by Canaan as legal technocrats. By 1957, the anti-lawyer propaganda actually became so bad that law graduates, both in and out of government, formed an association to defend their rights against, uh, or rather to protect uh, government jobs. There were, of course, lawyers who continued to practice their trade after the revolution. Anton Salim Kanan is one. It's tempting to trace this success to Kanan's anti-Zionist and anti-imperialist writings, which were so consonant with the regime's ideology. In an interview with Mr. Kanan, which I conducted at his Cairo apartment in July of 1986, I was afforded a glimpse into his thoughts and the course of his career, which cast some light on these questions. Though perhaps not surprisingly, the discussion little confirmed the existence of the Campbell-Bannerman report. However, his career profile is of great interest to this study, to the study of Egyptian lawyers and the history of Abdel Nasser's presidency. Mr. Kanan, this is the man who authored that article in 1957 for the Damascus Conference, so the originator of the Campbell-Bannerman story, was born in Cairo in 1922, son of a Palestinian Catholic emigre from Jerusalem. He received his schooling in Cairo before taking a certificate from the Sorbonne in history in 1940. He returned to Cairo and at his father's insistence enrolled in law at the Cairo University. He submitted a dissertation for the doctorate in law in 1947 entitled The Legal Justification of the Arab Cause of Palestine, which was brought to the attention of Hajj Amin al-Husseini. One thing that came out in my interview with Mr. Kanad was he was a shameless name dropper. And he really knew half the people that I'm about to mention in the course of recounting our interview that I really should have had more time interviewing this guy because he literally knew everyone from uh, the 1940s to the 1980s when I was meeting him. The Mufti of Jerusalem contacted Kanan and requested that he make a lecture tour of European universities on the basis of what he had said in his doctoral thesis. In 1949, he spoke at Rome where he met with the Pope in September uh, of that year. He spoke in Naples, in Turin, in Paris, in Lille, and London on the Holy Lands and the Zionist advances. That was the title of his lecture. In 1950, Mr. Kanan returned to Cairo to begin what was to be a very successful legal career. He rapidly climbed the rungs of the Egyptian courts, serving first as stagiaire, or an apprentice, and then sommaire. I'm not entirely sure what that corresponds to in French legal jargon, but it's a promotion above the stagiaire, and then première instance, so the court of first instance, and then the appellate court. In 1964, at the age of 42, he was appointed lawyer before the Mahkamat al-Nakad, which was Egypt's, Egypt's Supreme Court of Appeal, or in the French, the Court of Cassation. He was young. You're supposed to be 50 years, before you, 50 years old before you could be appointed to the Mahkamat al-Nakad. So getting in at 42 is just a further sign of how advanced he was in his career. He was the youngest lawyer ever to be admitted 
to the Court of Cassation in Egypt. He was the Vatican's legal counsel. In fact, he claimed that his apartment, the one I had interviewed him in, in Shariat Amsis, actually belonged to the Vatican. And he was a lawyer for the Tunisian president, Habib Bourguiba, in Cairo. So he represented Bourguiba's interests in Egypt. All the while, Canaan taught courses on civil law and international law at the Ma'had al-Muhammad, or the Lawyers' Institute, attached to the Bar Association. Comparing this career with the state of the legal profession as already described, an explanation for Mr. Canaan's success is due. When I suggested that Mr. Canaan might have experienced difficulties as a young lawyer in a crowded profession at the time of the revolution, he wouldn't elaborate. All he would say is, Rubbana wafa'na, God gave us success. He did say that his first contact with the Revolutionary Command Council after 1952 was a sequestration order suspended following the intervention of Ahmed Shukheri, who, of course, is going to be the first leader of the PLO. Clearly, Canaan was at odds ideologically with the regime. He said to me, I couldn't be a Marxist. I'm a liberal Democrat. I don't believe in socialism. I told this to Abdul Nasser. So in, in essence, as a young lawyer, he was setting himself apart from the ideological guiding lines of the new regime in Egypt. Surely this would not endear you to a government that already looked at lawyers with a jaundiced eye. All the same, Canaan was frequently called on to represent his government. On August 12, 1956, in the wake of the nationalization of the Suez Canal, and coinciding with the conference of canal users in London, Canaan was sent to London, quote, to make some contacts with journalists and political parties there about the Palestinian question and its relationship to the Suez Canal crisis. So already he's linking us to his history, his personal history of engaging with the Arab-Israeli conflict around the Suez Canal, very much in line with the human barrier thesis of his 1957 article. Between 1960 and 64, Canaan was sent on mission to a number of African states, to Ghana, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, as Abdel Nasser's official envoy. As was fitting, Canaan was head of the Egyptian delegation to the Vatican in 1965, sent to protest against the ecumenical council that would declare world Jewry faultless for the crucifixion of Christ. You may recall the Catholics until then had always accused Jews of deicide for their responsibility for the crucifixion. Taufiq Kanan's job in this otherwise benign moment was to try and discourage the Vatican from such a measure because they saw it as a first step towards recognizing Israel and sort of naturalizing Israel's position in the community of nations. I was sent by Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Arab League, and the PLO, he claimed to lobby the Vatican, unsuccessfully. Finally, it brings us back to the Campbell-Bannon report, Mr. Kanan was a frequent member of the Egyptian delegation to the conferences of the Arab Lawyers' Union, for which he wrote most of his publications. The delegations were all official, drawn from members of the Bar Association of each country that attended. Delegates were more or less free to write what they wanted, more or less were his words. I kept trying to press him to see whether there was any intervention by the state to tell members of these delegations what to say or what kind of line to take. So more or less free to write what they wanted, though in view of the strict censorship, official approval of papers presented was a foregone conclusion. Mr. Kanan insisted that the government never changed a thing in his articles, not one iota, he said. 
considering the nature of Mr. Kanan's paper, as suggested by the foregoing analysis of the Campbell-Bannerman report, no changes were necessary. He was playing to the gallery. He was writing exactly what the regime would have wanted to hear about a kind of imperial scheming in support of Zionist ambitions at the expense of Arab rights. Returning to that document, I asked Mr. Kanan where he came across the working paper issued by the Secret Imperialist Conference of 1907. And going back over my notes of the interview, I mean, it's worth pausing here. I was 25 at the time of meeting this guy. I was embarrassed because I'd written this denunciation of this article he had written in no uncertain terms and only got to meet him after going to the world of Arabic letters saying that he had made up this whole thing. Here was this elderly gentleman who received me in his apartment with great kindness and hospitality, and I felt like a total hypocrite. So at this stage in my thinking about Campbell Bannerman's report, I was really much more interested in the strategy of a lawyer trying to advance their professional standing against adversity in the revolutionary Egyptian political scene. And a lot of the questioning that fills up most of my cassette here was really focusing on his life, his background. And he keeps interrupting me. He's suspicious. He's like, are you Christian or Jewish? I'm Christian. Okay. Um, Why are you asking me this? Uh, I'm a historian. Why are you interested in lawyers? Very interesting moment in the history of law. (laughs) You know, I can't. And finally, I mean, I didn't have the guts to just say to him, did you make up the Campbell-Bannon report? You know, looking back on it now, it's the one question, of course, I most wanted to ask him. But I just felt constrained under my own sense of guilt at having written about this man in terms that I had that were very critical, and then now to be receiving his hospitality with, uh, you know, such open friendness on my part. So... But I did finally get to it. We got round to, as we talked about his publications and his papers, you know, you wrote one on this document called the Campbell-Bannerman Report. So I finally got to ask him what the background was to the document. Where did he come across the working paper? He claimed that he learned about the Campbell-Bannerman Report from an Algerian intellectual named Ali Hammami. Brought it to his attention. He had been expelled by the French from some unspecified part of North Africa, where Ali Hamami next went to Iraq. And in 1949, Hamami was returning from a series of conferences in Pakistan, so just after partition, when he was killed in a plane crash under mysterious circumstances. And why Zaruf Ramida keep cropping up, mysterious circumstances? And those who had the misfortune of writing about Campbell-Bannerman, actually, I should take some comfort here because Anton Salim Kanaan would have been in his 60s by the time I met him. So clearly he'd survived the curse of Campbell-Bannerman. And so too for the past 32 years have I. But Ali Hamami and the unnamed British journalist who died in World War I are unfortunate victims. And they took the secret with them. A collection of uh, papers were traced to the British Museum Library, now the British Library, where Canaan was looking into the life of Campbell Bannerman. He maintains that there were a collection of Campbell Bannerman's papers held by relatives in Scotland, a nephew named Gilmore, Ian Gilmore. He went to Edinburgh and described what he was looking for. Quote, They told me, yes, there is all of this. However, 
We removed it all. We left no trace of all of this. This is Anton Selim Kanan telling you what the Gilmore family told him about the papers at Campbell Bannerman that related to this secret working paper. The papers concerning this famous report were removed, pure and simple, as all documents which are believed to be compromising are removed. That was Anton Salim Kanan's final statement. Mr. Kanan's response is, of course, not entirely satisfying, let alone conclusive. Before dismissing the Campbell-Bannerman report, though, it is worth remarking that what Mr. Kanan described is not altogether inconsistent with the larger historical picture at the time. Thus, though the notion of conservatives running the liberals' foreign office can be rejected out of hand, there was much continuity in the conduct of international affairs between the Balfour and the Campbell-Bannerman cabinets. Bearing this continuity in mind, the Balfour cabinet's consideration of Herzl's El Arish plan for Zionist colonization of northern Sinai in 1902-1903 is quite consistent with the suggestions proffered by the secret conference of 1907. In the colonial office, Joseph Chamberlain saw potential for Britain to gain strategically from the El Arish project, for he agreed with the idea provided it had Cromer's approval. Considering the notion of separating the Asian and African parts of the Arab world, Rashid Khalidi's study on British policy in Syria and Palestine demonstrates both an active Anglo-French policy to keep Egypt isolated from Syria by railways and a more defined Arab fear of Zionism in the pre-World War I years for fear of, quote, the interposition of an alien body between Egypt and Syria, thereby rupturing the tenuous but growing links between them. This is quoting Rashid Khalidi's book. British historians lend some meaning to such conspiratorial policies, and they write, the concept that there is a natural life and death for empires had a powerful hold on the men of pre-war Europe. The consciousness of possible decline exaggerated the defensive response of the Foreign Office to any signs of a challenge. Now, what is that one from? I am quoting there. Zara Steiner's Britain and the Origins of the First World War. From the foregoing, we may draw one of two conclusions. Either the Campbell-Bannerman report is, at the very least, not inconsistent with the larger historical picture, and thus not unlikely, or else that the historical consistency confirms that the document was indeed contrived, though by someone who knew a bit of history. One's choice is likely to be determined by what one perceives to be the more prevalent phenomenon, imperialist machinations or spurious conspiracy theories. And on that note, I brought my analysis of the Campbell-Bannerman report to a close.